Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with the content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Kimber Woodrum, and today I will be chatting with several panelists about their experiences with implementing and providing transitions of care pharmacy services. So first of all, thank you all for joining us today. And before we get started, I wanted to give all of you the opportunity to introduce yourselves and your practice sites. My name is Monica Green, and I am a pharmacy ambulatory manager with UTMB Health System. I am Crochet Charles. I am an assistant professor of pharmacy practice at Texas Southern University and clinical faculty here at UTMB in League City. My name is Amy Perpich, and I'm the pharmacy clinical manager for ambulatory services and manage our seven transitions of care pharmacists here at Norton Healthcare in Louisville, Kentucky. My name is Justin McCann. I'm one of those transition to care clinical pharmacist specialists, and I'm at Norton Audubon Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky. My name is Amanda Martinez, and I'm a pharmacotherapy specialist at Tampa General Hospital, which is a large academic medical center in Tampa, Florida. Before we get started today, um, now that each of you have introduced yourselves, I was thinking that... Um, especially from the perspective of someone doing transitions of care work at your institution, what does that day-to-day look like? Essentially, uh, from at Norton Healthcare, um, we've got transition to care pharmacists at uh, three of our four adult hospitals. I've been fortunate enough to spend time at all three of those adult hospitals, so my day-to-day depending on where I am is pretty similar with some differences and depending on the nuances of each hospital, but We focus on hospital admissions and discharges. Early in the day, I'll work up patients, kind of try to prioritize my day the best that I can at that time. I think in a roundabout way, prioritization is something that (laughs) I have to do throughout each and every day because some days I'll prioritize patients that are that are coming into the hospital at admissions, and I'm doing their a complete medication review and reconciliation for these patients that are initially coming into the hospital. And then times will happen where there will be a lot of discharges in the afternoons. So then my prioritization will then then shift gears. So I do a, a lot of medication histories, a lot of discharge reconciliation, as well as discharge counselings, and everything in between. I'll. I'll talk to doctors about potential therapy optimizations as well as potential um, errors that are caught at the time of admission and or discharge. I'll also take part in any kind of financial barrier mitigation if a patient is discharging home on a medication that could potentially cause something like that, including insulin, oral anticoagulations, oral antiglycemic medications, and anything else that you can think of. So a lot of my day does revolve around trying to prioritize patients the most appropriate way. I do rely on my EMR to help do that, but then sometimes I will have to shift gears depending on the requests that are being made by my community pharmacist counterparts as well as the physicians within the health uh, the hospital. Here at UTMB, what we do, we, we run the report to see who went home on the meds to bed program in the last 24 hours, 24 to 48 hours. We run the report to see who went home. And then once uh, we have to do a review of, of, of course, the discharge summary in the EMR, 
what medications they went, all the medications that they went home on and do a quick uh, review of uh, what uh, what medications are new, um, maybe, you know, um, uh, anticoagulants, uh, antibiotics to try to um, figure out what may need recounseling or reinforcement when we make the phone calls. Also, while we're in the EMR, we're looking at the um, just briefly looking at the uh, the hospital course of that patient, also getting the demographic information of the patient, telephone numbers and things of that. Sometimes the patients are, are, are um, they have caregivers. So we need to, we can, you know, review the chart to determine that uh, who, who, we, who do we need to ask for when we make those phone calls. And uh, typically the calls are maybe about 10 minutes or so. And it can go a little longer if uh, we have to use the translation services. And that's how we, our day typically goes. Just Amanda, for um, Tampa General Hospital, our services have changed quite a bit, but now we are part of the, the transitional care center at our hospital. So we work with that team um, to provide our transitions of care services. So we have a list of our bundled payment patients that are identified in our EMR, which is EPIC. And we all work off the same list of patients. We're monitoring those patients throughout their admission and their discharge. So for their admission, our transitions of care technicians will go and do an admission med history, a thorough med history, and then introduce our meds to bed service and really encourage the patients to utilize that service. At discharge, we monitor, so a transition the care pharmacist will monitor the list of patients admitted and the ones that are ready for discharge. We do a discharge med rec review, identify any discrepancies, any errors, and clear those up with the discharging provider before the patient leaves and ensure they get those medications via meds to beds. And we also do a post-discharge phone call for patients that are identified as our bundled care payment patients um, after the nurses do their care coordination call. So we coordinate our services with them. Um, we have a morning huddle at eight o'clock every day with the team. And then we also have a 3 p.m rounds with the team, which is like a remote rounds where we discuss any patients, any concerns that came up during the post-discharge uh, phone calls. Within your organization, what really sparked the interest in starting Transitions of Care Services? Kimber, I can start with that one. For us, our organization, I think our interest was kind of twofold. And that was we had launched an open community pharmacist in our hospitals to provide meds to beds to our patients. And um, we were maybe uh, struggling a little bit with getting that kind of off the ground, but also to start the service to hopefully decrease readmissions as well as decrease adverse events from incorrect or lack of medications at discharge for our patients. And this is Monica. For us here at UTMB, um, our system director of pharmacy, because we actually weren't here at the time when the idea was presented for transitions of care, we had a best care initiative here at UTMB. And one of that focus was for reducing readmissions. And so our focus then became reducing admissions related to medications. And so that's how we started our journey and started a meds to beds program along with transitions of care. This is Amanda. Pretty similar at our institution as well. We were looking at reducing readmissions and revisits um, due to medication errors, lack of medication access at our institution. Great. So it does sound like we have a variety of reasons your institutions were interested in starting transitions of care services. So with your service lines, what are the goals and intended outcomes for those services? 
I think like everyone else is, of course, to reduce readmissions. <laughs> um, that was our primary goal, of course, to improve patient satisfaction, provide medication counseling and education, and of course, improve the patient safety outcomes were our primary goals and objectives. And as part of our service here at Norton, I would say a large part of what our team does is mitigating financial barriers. We found that there were numerous examples of patients that had left our facility anticipating to pick up medications at a community pharmacy just to find out that they couldn't afford them. And they ended up back in our ERs or in our hospitals. So we actually still focus a lot on mitigating financial barriers by using our community pharmacies and meds to beds. And then our uh, clinical specialists actually do a lot of optimization of therapy and then reducing errors at discharge by reviewing that after visit um, med rec. And then also they spend time educating the patients and their families um, on any new medications as they're leaving the hospital. I was going to add to that. I know it was a little delayed. Essentially, at the end of the day, it's looking at improving overall patient outcomes. So uh, from that avenue, you look at decreasing readmissions, optimizing patients' chronic disease states, and mitigating financial barriers. But it all funnels back to that improving patient outcomes um, for as many people as we can as we can touch. I agree. This is Amanda. So what we look at as is readmissions, but also revisits to the hospital. So if they're coming back to the ED or they're coming in for observation, and we also look at trying to reduce the cost of the care. We're in several value-based care contracts. So reducing that cost of care is important as well. And, and improving patient outcomes by reducing medication errors at discharge. And we also help with um, care coordination. So ensuring the patients get their visits with their primary care providers and any specialists that they need to follow up with. So prior to offering these services, what types of planning did you complete? And what did that first year of services look like for each of you at your institution? So here at UTMB, we, we took the first six to eight months and we, we met every other week during that time, just trying to figure out how will we initiate the services um, we it, uh, the the key players or stakeholders doing those meetings were the pharmacy faculty who would be very active in, in in making the phone calls. We had an ambulatory consultant come in. We included the outpatient pharmacist team, pharmacists and uh, technician staff because we would use the the technicians to help us deliver the medications back and forth. We also had pharmacy informatics involved. And so for about six to eight months, we we uh, we talked about it and we put our plans in place. And um, eventually we started and running reports to see where we would, uh, initially we started on one to two units and just two of the, the locations here in the Gal- in the Houston Galveston area of the system. And, and we only worked on, we only used, uh, um, uh, worked on two, maybe two floors at each, each institution, but we, we ran reports to see who were our, I guess, the patients that were going home mostly, and we um, uh, we started there, and then from there, we just kind of continued to work on the program, continued to uh, make adjustments and, and uh, based on the needs of our, our patients. Yeah, we had kind of an interesting, we actually did this as a pilot. We The pilot ended up lasting two years. 
but we actually utilized our six PGY1 residents to kind of help. Um, I was the clinical manager on the inpatient side at that point in time. And we actually set it up to where each of the residents spent a month with me. And we had some just very quick ways to identify patients that we built in our EMR. And we actually had a pilot group of physicians, um, seven of our hospitalists, and a control group of hospitalists that we really did not work with. And we actually looked at those patients and those physicians that we looked at as far as their capture rates with meds to beds and their readmissions. And we were actually able to show decreased readmissions for the patients that we were getting meds to and we were counseling before they left. And so we continued that pilot into the second year. And then we're actually able to get five FTEs. The pilot took place in one of our four adult hospitals When we got five FTEs, we actually started in two of our adult hospitals. Um, The pilot started in 17, and we got those FTEs in 19. So for us, we started this transition to care service as a resident project. Also, we used one of our PGY2 ambulatory care residents to help kick it off, and we we used it as a pilot and then um, gathered the data, and we were able to get a full-time FTE just dedicated for transitions of care services. But it did take a lot of planning and determining which patient population we wanted to target, which ones actually, you know, really would benefit from the service, how to identify them quickly, you know, so they can get the service, and, and building all the reports to capture the data. Right. And Crochet, I think you touched on this in your answer as well, but um, what types of stakeholders were involved in the planning and development of those services? So we used the um, ambulatory consultant from another institution, the pharmacy staff, which was the outpatient pharmacy staff, which included the pharmacists and the pharmacy technicians. We also had, of course, the director of pharmacy was involved. It was his vision for us to implement the project and the uh, faculty member, which was me. And we kind of, uh, we met uh, continuously. We met over that. Oh, and pharmacy informatics was involved uh, to help us with how to, uh, what we wanted the report, what did we want in the report, and then how will we run the reports and things of that nature. Uh, For us, I would say our stakeholders, obviously our VP of pharmacy was heavily involved in this project as well as the hospital directors. But I would definitely say our community pharmacy um, was a huge stakeholder, as well as our physicians, especially the hospitalists, because they tend to be the physicians that we partner with the most. And then obviously hospital leadership and finance from a return on investment and approval standpoint. So similar stakeholders for us too. Our director of pharmacy was really supportive of this initiative and actually kind of kicked it off. And another key stakeholder was the some of the medical directors on the ambulatory side because they did want this service to improve transitions of care when they actually got the patients into the clinic after discharge. And now who we report to is senior leadership. We're part of our effectiveness domain committee at the hospital, and we provide our data and results to that committee now. Yeah, it definitely sounds like all of you are doing a lot of great work around transitions of care at your institutions. Did you all face any initial barriers when starting transitions of care services? And if so, how did you all overcome those? So here at UTMB, one of our initial barriers was not necessarily involving nursing leadership. And 
one of the issues that we were having was that our technicians were actually tasked with calling the patients on the phone, um, not only running the reports, but trying to figure out who was truly leaving for the day because it was real time. So the technicians would call the patient's room and ask if they were interested in the meds to beds program and if they were leaving for the day. And we thought that that was, it wasn't giving us the initial uh, robust robust program we're looking for. So we looked into our Epic EMR and we saw flow sheets that were an opportunity for nurses to ask on their end to talk to the patient about our meds to beds program that would lead to transitions of care. And notice that the flow sheets were basically hidden. It was too many steps for the nursing nurses to get to. So we added a nurse navigator, which helped the uh, helped us out first that we wouldn't have to call the patient directly, but the nurse would call uh, contact the patient at the admission time during the admissions navigator portion of their interview with the patient, and then ask them if they were interested in the meds to beds program. What that led to is their interest would uh, give us a patient list or a queue that was created in Epic for us, which would lead to our patient list that we could talk to the patients in more detail about our meds to beds program and let them know that they would receive a transition of care phone call post-discharge. You know, we hope to get about 72 hours post-discharge. So that proved to us that we could actually talk to the patient before they left the hospital and after to ensure that they understood how to use their medications and they would get those medications before they left to, of course, reduce readmissions and talk to them about their focus on how they're taking the medications, what to do if they have a side effect, et cetera. So that was actually how we addressed that barrier. But that EPIC um, system issue, along with nursing leadership involvement, was truly a barrier for us in the beginning. And then also, just to add to that, we went live with the program just as the world was shutting down. (laughs) So initially, in all of those months of planning, the technician would actually go to the, our plan was that the technician would actually go to the, the patient's room and have a conversation. But then we had to readjust to the phone call uh, from the pharmacy uh, by the technician to the patient. I think some of our initial barriers, of course, I feel like this is probably true for everyone, but it's um, justifying the FTE. So I felt like our pilot showed some great improvements and decrease in readmissions and definitely an increase in use of meds to beds for our patients. But um, it still took us a while to get those actual FTE positions. And then also optimizing the EMR, working with that team, it just took a little bit of time, not so much the build time, just kind of going from a very quick pilot into kind of a more robust and more algorithmic, I guess, way of identifying high-risk patients within our organization. And then I would say um, some of the other initial barriers are just really figuring out who you want to target and then getting the people hired and there and kind of introduced to all the key players in the hospitals, everyone from nursing, physicians, community pharmacy, it just takes a little bit of time. Yeah. And to piggyback on that, I think from a clinical specialist perspective, looking at basically the logistics of everything. So becoming the players involved in the hospital and who are, who, who your contact and then those contacts knowing how to get a hold of you, what you need to be doing on a day-to-day basis and just kind of learning the role and in the place when it's something that was not previously done at that institution. So doctors, explain to the doctors who you are, what you're doing, and how your your goals can interact and overlap. I think that's just a logistical barrier that no matter what you do is going to be in place when you come up with new service lines. Um, and that, you know, definitely includes transition of care. 
And ironically, we just talked about our initial barriers, but kind of on the back end of that, Justin, I think you'd agree with us. I feel like one of the barriers now is actually more clearly defining our scope because everyone wants to use us and everyone seeks us out. And there are so many patients and not enough people to cover all of the patients. And I I definitely want to add to that. I think we started off with focusing on every patient that was a meds to beds patient. So we didn't necessarily focus on high risk, but those that were receiving meds to beds. And so now that it's expanded and what we didn't mention to you all is um, because um, Crache is faculty, she has her students making the calls where the issue is if she doesn't have students on that rotation, then she's trying to make all those calls. And as we expand, we had to come up with a way to then target our high risk patients. And I think uh, most of us that that use Epic, there's a way to look to see who the high risk patients are. And that's where we are now, because like I said, if she has a student, it's great. But if she doesn't, then we have an issue. So definitely FTEs um, having the staff there to to take those to do those calls is definitely an issue. And our approach is that we use, we actually do use a scored list in Epic that we built with our criteria. And we have chosen to focus on post-PCI patients, as well as COPD exacerbation, uncontrolled diabetes, and heart failure patients. And then we factor in a few other things as well. We use the um, prediction readmission risk score built in Epic. So if they're high risk, they get additional points. If they're on more than eight or more than 15 meds prior to admission, that also bumps their score. And then we look at some other things like specific target drugs that we have issues with at transitions like oral anticoagulants. Ticacin is one that we've recently added. Some of those other drugs, oral vancomycin, some things that we know that if they don't get meds in hand before they leave, we could have kind of big problems when they go home. It's good to see that someone else is using the readmission score. We, that's what we use as well. So yeah, that's definitely one of our barriers to trying to streamline our approach and not try to see every patient. We quickly realized we couldn't do that. And plus it's hard to show benefit or improvement if you're not comparing, you know, apples to apples. So we now focused on our, our bundled payment patients. And another barrier we had, we noticed, you know, some things were out of our scope, you know, as pharmacists, we needed social work, we needed nursing assistance for some patients, you know, it wasn't just medication related. So we now have a multidisciplinary approach. We um, have our own transitions of care clinic, which is, which is remote. And we have, you know, nursing, social work, medical assistance that, that also help when something may be out of our scope and we help when something's out of, out of their scope medication wise. And Kimber, if you don't mind, I wanted to ask a quick question. Does anyone have an issue with the patient getting multiple calls? Because we have our transition of care and then you have the other group, maybe nursing, calling for patients that uh, are high risk, COPD, heart failure, that they're calling the patient as well. So we had to find some type of <laughs> happy medium to make sure that the patient understood pharmacy is calling for the medications, but nursing may be calling for other things. Do any of you have that Definitely. Issue? We've definitely had that issue um, at Tampa General. We have so many different groups that, you know, want to help with readmissions and there's different projects going on. So what we recently did was a crosswalk to, you know, identify who's calling the patients and which patients they're calling. And for the transitions of care clinic, we do kind of a, a warm handoff you know, the nurse will call it first and do the care coordination and say, hey, pharmacist, a pharmacist is going to call you from our clinic to discuss your medications. That way it's not confusing. But yeah, we were getting some patients 
would get three, four phone calls and then their insurance company would call too. So, you know, you, you lose engagement. And we actually focus mostly on the patient that is discharging to home or home health at the time of discharge. We have actually not been able to figure out how to spread our time to make post-discharge phone calls. So we sort of get them teed up, hopefully have everything they need. We do have a way to do handoff to any physician or pharmacist in our health system that might see them post-discharge, but we don't actually contact the patients typically after discharge. We will sometimes, but it's more of the um, exception, not the rule. It sounds like we've definitely had a lot of great discussion around um, you all starting up these services and what specific measures you have in place to determine success of your services. So for those of you that have kind of mentioned expanding your services, what types of initial markers of success do you believe led to the ability to expand those services? I can speak here. So I mentioned that we started with five FTEs and we actually have expanded to seven and are in the process of trying to get additional FTEs at our last adult hospital. And I would say that the measures that we have looked at are really about kind of driving that meds to beds and the overall capture for patients in those facilities. I would say that even though it's not measured, physician satisfaction and community pharmacy satisfaction of having us on the team has been incredibly well received, especially with that financial mitigation piece. We don't do prior authorizations, but we do just about everything else with regards to the mitigation of financial barriers. It did take us a little bit of time to get some of our data automated in the back end, but I do look at um, touch points, uh, readmissions. We look at interventions that the pharmacist put into the medical record as well. Um, For us, I would say what led to expansion was the reduction in readmissions related to medications, because we were actually a part of a readmissions task force. And, um, you know, it it came to a point where medication was not an issue anymore. So I was actually removed from that task force, (laughs) which was kind of a plus. And um, the staff satisfaction with this with the service, as well as the patient satisfaction. So once we got the buy in from staff, nursing, Um, And the providers, when we moved to open a new location, the CNO was involved, the, you know, nursing leadership was involved, and everybody was on board to move forward with our next phase with our transition of care program. So to expand our services, we look at, you know, similar uh, metrics, so readmissions, revisits. Um, We also look at, you know, the cost of care or the cost of the readmission, um, especially with the value-based contract patients, and then um, med errors at discharge. We look at those rates. Um, So before we finish up today, I wanted to see if any of you have any advice or tips that you wish you had known to share with any of our listeners today that may be considering implementing transitions of care services. So here at UTMB, I would say the biggest assist for us was the EPIC uh, navigator, admissions navigator to have the nurses help us introduce the the meds to beds program. So we could in turn focus on filling those medications, getting them out to the patient at the bedside, and then having that follow-up call. So that really, you know, moved us forward with before, like I stated, our staff, our pharmacy staff, which we had one pharmacist and one tech at two locations, and they were making those calls to uh, the patient's rooms and the patient may not have been in the room, they may have been out for a procedure. So there were so many barriers with that. So I would definitely say that, and then be prepared 
to uh, request for more FTEs. <laughs> I think my advice would be to start small, make sure that you can measure something, whether it's manually or with a data report built in your EMR, but to be clear on what your goals are and measure them and also know upfront who your champions might be and who your stakeholders are, especially those physicians. Um, what we have found is that the physicians have probably been the biggest champions of the service. And even though they don't necessarily make the decisions, I do feel like they're a very important customer and voice um, for us and the expansion. So I agree. Definitely identifying a good patient population and starting small, not trying to conquer it all, finding something that you'll be able to measure and make a difference in and make sure it aligns with the institution that you're not just targeting um, a patient population, maybe that, you know, they're not also focusing on, you know, make sure that it's a patient population that actually needs the service and also use pharmacy extenders. If you, if you have access to them, like students, residents, technicians to help with the service so that the pharmacist can practice at the top of their license. Great. I hope some of that advice can really help some of our listeners that are interested in getting started with these services at their own institution. So that's all the time we have today. I really want to thank each of you, all of our guests, for joining us today to discuss getting started with Transitions of Care Pharmacy Services. Um, and for you listeners, if you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Ambulatory Care Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, the Research Resource Center, Clinical Pharmacy Resources, and so much more. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Hot Topics in Pharmacy, and we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.